You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. I know a lot of you are probably fairly disappointed this morning, and so today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about perseverance, never quitting, and the things that are really important in life to help get us refocused. Now, most of you are probably stinging that, at least at this point, it appears that Democrats have won the two Senate races in Georgia. Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue have lost to John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock. And uh, that basically makes the Senate 50-50. And with Democrats controlling the House, a Senate that's 50-50 with a potential Kamala Harris vice president gives a 51-50 lead to Democrats. And if Joe Biden is sworn in as the president, we're looking at a completely Democratic-controlled government, uh, a government that is committed to socialized medicine, defunding the police, uh, the Green New Deal, massive spending, uh, packing the courts, and on and on and on. And so things can look a little bit dismal right now. And I want to encourage everyone that there is still light at the end of the tunnel, that quitting is not an option. And I'm going to do some things today. We're going to talk about some historical scenarios that can shed light on the current situation. And we're, I'm going to share with you some of my own personal anecdotes that illustrate how all is not lost. And I would also like to emphasize to people that life is not about what I wish. My father used to tell me all the time, you play the hand you're dealt. Don't sit there and wish about the cards that you didn't get. You got to play the cards that you did get. And right now, these are the cards that were dealt. Now, There are people that are waking up in the morning today that are dealing with recent loss of sight, the inability to walk. There are people who've recently been given a terminal diagnosis, and they're facing real challenges. And one of my experiences being a doctor is a daily reminder of the blessings that we have and to really understand that for all of us, our time on this earth is short. And it's not about us. It's about what God wants for us. And we all need to be reminded that our time on this planet is about God's will. And so we're going to talk a little bit about some of this stuff, try and give some perspective and uh, and some encouragement and help each of you dust yourselves off, pick yourselves off, and let's get started uh, with the next chapter in the way this is going to play out. Now, talking with David here, and on David's pick, on January the 15th at 10 a.m., he's going to have a very special guest, uh, NFL star Rocky Blyer. He used to be a running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He went to Vietnam, and actually, I believe a grenade blew part of his foot off. Uh, 
fortunately didn't take his life, but had the potential to take away his career. And you can only imagine what he must have felt like when he came back from Vietnam and fought his way back and eventually won four Super Bowls. And I'll bet you that when he was laying in a jungle in Vietnam with part of his foot blown off, he probably felt things were pretty bleak and that there was no way forward. But because he persevered, because he didn't quit, uh, he eventually was part of the Pittsburgh Steelers four Super Bowl championship teams. And that should give us all encouragement that life goes on. Despite what happened yesterday, life goes on. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story about my daughter. Now, uh, like many of us, we have our kids play sports and engage in activities. And at least from my perspective, I don't expect my girls to become professional softball players. Uh, my, My little one rides horses. I don't expect her to be a professional equestrian Uh, competitor. But what I do want him to do is learn life's lessons. And my my 12-year-old daughter, a couple of years ago when she was 10, she learned a really great life lesson that I think is appropriate for today. Now, a lot of you have either played baseball or softball. You have kids that play baseball or softball, and you're familiar with a batting swing called the tomahawk, which is sort of a no-no. you got this situation where you're coming over the top with the bat instead of swinging through the ball. And when batters kind of get into this rhythm of this tomahawk chop, it can be difficult to get them to correct their swing, and it makes it tough for them to to connect with the ball and get good hits. Well, a couple years ago, my daughter was playing on a um, uh, a softball team, and they were playing in a championship game, and she was having a little bit of difficulty with the tomahawk chop. And so we had been working on it. We went to a batting instructor, and I, I went out in the yard with her, and we sort of worked on this. And we, we get into the game, and I felt really good about her swing. She had been been swinging nice and level and connecting with the ball, and I was really excited for her to have a great game. Well, we get into the, we get into the game, and she gets her first at-bat, and the pitcher pitches the ball over her head, and she lays off that pitch just like I taught her to and just like her coaches taught her to. And the umpire called strike. And I was somewhat frustrated. I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, I'm trying to teach my daughter to lay off these high pitches with the tomahawk chop, and you got an umpire who calls a ball over her head a strike. It's ridiculous. But we all know life is not fair. So the next pitch came down the pike, and again, it was over her head. And to my daughter's credit, she did not swing. And the umpire called strike again. So she turned around and she looked at me and she started tearing up. And I said, listen, that's the way life is. Get up there, focus, and uh, finish your at-bat. And so she gets up there and the next pitch comes and it's over her head, clearly. She does not swing at the ball and the umpire calls strike. One, two, three, she strikes out in the first at-bat and she turned around and she started crying. And she, you know, she said, this is not fair. You know, I've been trying to hit this level swing. And the umpire called strikes. And I looked at her and I pulled her off to the side and I said, listen, this is the way things go in life. Not everything is fair. Not everything works out, but you don't get to quit. 
what are we going to do? And she goes, well, I'm going to have to make an adjustment. I said, absolutely. You're going to have to go and get those balls up above your head. And um, and just understand that this umpire is calling these balls over your head a strike. So she gets up to her next at-bat, and the first pitch is over her head, and they call strike again. Now, at this point, I'm really frustrated at the umpire because it's getting to be ridiculous. I mean, these balls are so far over my daughter's head. And, I mean, on the inside, I just wanted to strangle this umpire. You know, you're killing me. Been working with her for a couple of weeks on trying to level out this swing. And you're just really – it's almost like you're trying to uh, to mess everything up that we had been working for. And so she looked at me, tearing up again when that first ball came over her head. And uh, she started tearing up, and I said really loudly so the umpire could hear it. I said, yes, he's calling those balls over your head strikes. It isn't fair, but it's the way life is. Get up there and make an adjustment. So she turned around, she got up to the plate, and the next pitch came down over her head, and she smacked that thing into right field, and she scored two runs and uh, got a got a two-run single. And I could not have been more proud of her for the way she handled that adversity, the way she didn't quit. And more importantly, I thought to myself, she's going to put that one in her pocket and save that for something more important in life. And that is going to make a huge difference. And how do I know this? Well, because I had similar experiences in my life that have helped me in things that have happened today. And I'm going to share with you some personal anecdotes I want to assure you that I am the most average person you'll ever see uh, athletically, um, intellectually, um, but I'm, I've done a very good job of taking what God has given me and maximizing it. And um, so please accept this um, trip down my memory lane uh, with, with uh, my um, – you know, I'm I'm trying to be humble about this. I don't want to come across as is uh, talking about my accolades, uh, but I do want to make some points that I think are important right now, and I just want to share the experiences I've had. Now, when I was in tenth grade, I was on the soccer team. Um, it was very unusual to be a starter on the soccer team when I was in high school, and I was one of very few people who who ever did. Um, when when I was a little kid before puberty, I was a really good athlete. We used to call the people like me um, great little kid athletes. And then as people started going through puberty and people got big and fast and strong, my dominance in athletics uh, got to be a lot less. But I was a really good soccer player for, for high school. I practiced all the time. I was a hard worker. And um, anyway, I'm starting on the uh, soccer team in Hawaii uh, as, a, as a sophomore, and we made it into the state championship. We're playing in the state championship. I can't remember if it was the final or the semifinal, but we played to a 0-0 draw, and the game ended, and so we went into a penalty shootout. And so I was picked as one of the kickers. I was the third kicker, and I missed my penalty shot, and we lost the state championship, and I was absolutely devastated. Now, as a 10th grader, what I was probably 14 or so, I, I, I thought this was the greatest tragedy that anybody had ever experienced. I was humiliated. I was devastated. And I sulked for a couple of weeks. 
And I can remember my math coach or my math teacher, who was also my football coach and one of the great mentors of my life, noticed in math class that I was down. And uh, after class, he pulled me aside and he said, uh, Scott, what's going on here? You know, you've been sulking around for uh, two weeks. So what's wrong? And I said, ah, you know, I missed that penalty kick in the state championship. And he looked at me with this look of astonishment on his face. And he said, you're still worried about missing that penalty kick, in te- you know, two weeks ago? He goes, Scott, that moment is over. And if you don't forget about that moment and learn from that moment, you're not going to be ready for the next moment that comes along in life. And it really made an important um, impact on me. I was able to sort of get over it, and he started asking me, what are you going to learn for this? And one of the things we got through talking about it was, I missed that penalty shot before I ever even took it. First of all, I never practiced penalty shots, ever. And, you know, getting in a pressure moment of a game and doing something that you have not prepared for and then failing, well, you shouldn't be surprised. If you don't put in the time and you don't put in the preparation, you're going to fail. Well, I learned from this. We came back. Um, we came back the next year, my junior year, and we won the state championship. Uh, and then we came back my senior year. We won the state championship again. I was the Hawaii State Player of the Year back then, and uh, I got recruited to UCLA to play soccer, which was the number one soccer team, college soccer team in the nation. And as a seventeen, eighteen year old kid, I thought I was on the path to be a professional soccer player. I believed in my heart that I was going to be the next Pele. And um, I got to UCLA, and I realized that very quickly that I was a big fish in a small pool growing up in Hawaii, and all of a sudden I became a very small fish in a big pool when I got to UCLA. We had five players on our team that were on the U.S. national team. One of the players... Uh, was playing in the Bundesliga, which is a German first division soccer league. So he was an amazing player. And we had this drill in practice where you have half the team line up on one side of the goal, half the team line up on the other side of the goal, and they would give you a number. And so, you know, if the coach called out number two, they'd throw the ball out into the field and number two from one side would go and number two from the other side of the goal would run out to the ball. The person who got the ball first was on offense. The person who got there second was on defense. And it was just a drill to try and get you to go out, get the ball and go one-on-one to the goal. Well, I was number seven. I remember it vividly. And the other number seven was this player who played in the Bundesliga. Now, I didn't know him at the time and I had no concept of how good he was. But as a professional soccer player, this guy was fast and quick and one of the greatest athletes I've ever seen. And the first time they called seven, he runs out, I run out, and of course, he's blazing fast, and I'm not. He got the ball first, and so I tried to play defense on him, and he put the ball between my legs, and he scored a goal. And when when uh, when you get the put ball put between your legs in soccer, we call that a nutmeg, and it's it's a, a very emasculating thing or a very humiliating thing to be able to do to an opponent. And as such, players try very hard not to be nutmegged. And when somebody does nutmeg you, they tend to rub it in your face. And I remember that first one stung. And I sort of went back to the line and I was shocked to my core that um, 
I had no way to compete here. I mean, this guy was so fast and so quick. I'm I'm reeling in my head. So the the drill continues. They call seven again. I go out, and he puts the ball between my legs and he scores a goal again. And so I I'm I'm limping back to the line now. My tail between my legs. I'm absolutely humiliated, and really uh, almost you know, sort of philosophically sucking my thumb and in the fetal position, I was just so um, overcome, overwhelmed with the enormity of the situation. And then finally they called, coach called seven a third time. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm at least not going to let him put the ball between my legs. I mean, I realize he's going to get there first. I realize he's probably going to score, but I'm not going to let him put the ball between my legs. I'm setting a little goal here. So I run out to the ball. I'm literally playing with my feet next to each other, you know, willing to concede anything but putting the ball between my legs. And he makes a move. He gets me to spread my legs. He puts the ball between my legs a third time, and he goes and he scores a goal. Now, after that practice, I remember going back to my dorm room at UCLA. I literally got into my bed. I curled up in the fetal position, and I think I was sucking my thumb. And it was a very tough time for me because at 17 or 18, whatever I was, my whole life, I thought of myself as Scott the soccer player. And all of a sudden, I realized that maybe I'm not as good as I think. And what am I going to be if I'm not Scott the soccer player? How am I going to tell all of my friends who think I'm going to going to go to this big school, I'm going to be an All-American and all these things? What am I going to tell them? And it really weighed on me. And I can remember, you know, I've been through a lot of trials and tribulations in my life. But because of my youth and the way I saw the world back then, that was probably one of the toughest times of my life. Well, my career at UCLA um, was tough. Um, I ended up getting redshirted, which is basically they just kind of pull you out of the lineup to preserve a eligibility. And... Um, you know, I basically was not on the team now. I'm on the team, but I'm not able to play this year. And the idea is that I would be able to get um, more experience and then be useful. So we go into our meetings uh, at at uh, with the coaches every quarter, and I went into that first meeting, and I remember them telling me, and uh, my coach was a guy named Ziggy Schmidt. I believe he's the coach of the LA Galaxy now. And um, – the assistant coach was Steve Sampson, who used to coach the um, U.S. national team soccer team. And they look at me and they basically say, Scott, you're a good athlete. You're not a great athlete. You know, we're hoping that uh, with maturity and everything, by the time you're a junior, you can be a useful part of the team. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, that was really harsh. <laughs> and, you know, the truth hurt. Uh, so I went back and I started working. I started training. I was doing this all along, but I did it even harder, and I was determined to to be better. And um, we started playing in the off season and playing against different teams. And I was I was doing a lot better. My confidence was getting better. I was playing better. I even had some of the other players on the team, the older guys, telling me. I remember one of the big big time players came up to me. He goes, "Hey Scott, you keep playing like that. You'll be starting next year." And I was really feeling good about myself. Things are turning out, and uh, you know maybe maybe this is going to work out for me. So I go into my final uh, meeting of the year expecting to hear how great I've been doing, that you're probably uh, going going to be on uh, the starting squad next year. 
And um, I remember that walk down by Poly Pavilion to go into the the coaches' um, meeting. And I sit there, and there's Ziggy, and there's Steve Sampson, and they look at me and they say, we don't think we got a spot on the team for you next year. And um, But you like the school and everything. And I just was – it was a gut punch. I did not expect that they were basically telling me that you're not going to be on the team next year. Now, this was almost more than I could stand, and I felt like, okay, I'm at the number one school in the nation. Uh, maybe if I went to a lesser competitive soccer school, I could play. And so I transferred to UC Berkeley, which was ranked number eight at the time. And I promise there's a point to this story. I went home that summer, and I trained like I've never trained before. I mean, I I was working at the moving company, and I remember my first day on the job at the moving company, uh, we got sent out on a late second move, and so we didn't finish work till 1 a.m. And I got to my house at 1 a.m., and I still went on my five-mile run that night. I I watched my diet. I trained every day. And when I showed up at um, UC Berkeley, I was fit. I was lean. I was ready to go. Um, I'd been training, and I was ready. This was going to happen for me. So I get out there, and actually things are going pretty well for me. Uh, it looked like the coach was was considering me. I was being put in situations where you could tell he was considering making me a, a, an integral part of the team. And uh, all of a sudden, a woman comes walking down the stadium stairs. She calls me over, and she says, well, because you transferred from UCLA to Berkeley, you're ineligible. So I ended up being ineligible that year, and so I practiced with the team, but I didn't travel, and I didn't get to play. So, again, I trained. I worked hard that summer. I came back the next season, and same thing. Things are starting to look good. And... um I see that lady walking down the stadium steps again, and I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, boy, uh, what is this going to be? She calls me over, and she says, well, because you transferred an Interpac 10 school, it's a second year. You're also ineligible this year. So I ended up not being able to play that year. So now I'm really frustrated, and um, I I practice with the team, but I'm not able to travel, and I'm not able to play. And uh, now, you know, I'm obviously running out of time. And the next year, um, I come back to camp, and the coach is not interested in me. I'm older. I haven't really been playing. I don't have experience. He's in a rebuilding year. And he basically just tells me, "Ah, I just don't think we have a spot for you. And I just remember thinking, how could this happen to me? I'm the hardest working person I know. I practice all the time. I went from being the, you know, high school player of the year to this happening. This is not fair. Um, nobody has been more wronged in the history of the world than me. And I just remember going back um, to uh, my fraternity house and I had some friends there who said, you know, you ought to come out for the rugby team because just on your athletic ability, you could probably make the travel squad. And, um, and you know, have some fun. So I thought, okay. And I went out for the rugby team, and it turned out that I had a real knack for playing rugby. And we ended up uh, winning the national championship my senior year. Uh, we were playing in the uh, regional finals 
against San Diego State, and this team had uh, beaten us the year before and won the 1987 National Championship in rugby. And so we're playing them, and we're losing by three points, and all of a sudden we get a penalty, and I kick for the team. So I got this 45-meter kick from the sideline, so it's a long kick from an angle with all the marbles on the line, and I thought back to my my 10th grade when I missed the penalty kick. But the difference was I practiced every single day after school to make these kicks. And so I would go up to the stadium and I would just kick, kick, kick. And my confidence was so high that I went and I made that kick and it tied the game. And as soon as I made that kick, the referee blew the whistle. Time was up. So we literally tied the game in the, in the nick of time. And so we went into overtime. We ended up winning that game. And then we went on to win the national championship. And uh, I won All-American honors that year. Now, the point I'm trying to make is all of the training that I did for soccer did not pay off for soccer. But the training and the hard work and the commitment, it paid off when I had another opportunity. And this is what I'm sure you guys have had your parents say. I know my father used to say it to me all the time, that God has a plan for you. And that when he closes a door, he often opens a window, and you need to go look for it. And that's where I feel we're at as a country today. A door has been closed, but the fight goes on. And that's the other thing my father used to always tell me is you never get to quit the game of life. No matter how hard you're hit, no matter how many negative things happen to you, no matter how unfair life comes at you, you can't quit. But if you keep moving forward, if you keep trudging forward, he also used to say to me, good things come to those who work hard. Good things always come to people who work hard. And that's where we're at right now, ladies and gentlemen. We are in a situation where our country is under assault by people who want to grow government, they want to control our education. They want to control our health care. They want to control our businesses. And we're in a fight. But you know what? This fight never ends. And we're going to stay in this fight no matter what. And we're going to do it by understanding that it's not about us as individuals. It's about God's plan for us. And what does that mean? Well, When I went to medical school, which, by the way, I'm gonna, if you guys can just bear with me another story about perseverance and about how the world works. I, when, I, when I went to college, I was probably a B-minus student. And some of that had to do with, uh, you know, I was focused on sports and other things and not really pushing my academics. I felt at the time, you know, if you're in high school and you get a, you know, you're a B or C student, there's, you might not get into Harvard, but there's a college out there for you. And I used to feel the same way about medical school. You know, maybe I'm not going to get into the best one, but I'll get into a medical school. And I found out right away, uh, a B minus does not get you into medical school, period. I didn't even get an interview on my first application. So I also took the MCAT, which is the Medical College Admissions Test, and I got a 2 out of 15 on the reading comprehension, which, just so you guys know, that is a very, very low score. And um, 
I thought it, it's so low that I thought I had just gotten the bubbles wrong. For you millennials out there, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But when we used to take standardized tests, we'd have a number two pencil and you'd screw it, you'd color in the bubble, a you know A B C D E for the correct answer. And I sometimes you if you weren't paying attention, you could get off a number and your your whole test would be wrong. So I thought that I had gotten off on those numbers, and that's why I got a two. So. I took the medical college admissions test again a second time, and um, I got a five on the reading comprehension. And I thought to myself, what is going on here? Like, I'm not able to read this information. I don't understand. I, you know, I was an average high school student. I was an average college student. But I didn't really try that hard. And, you know, I'm not the dumbest person. And I just, it was just really confounding to me. So... I applied to medical school a second time, and I didn't get accepted. And I went to Georgetown to meet with um, one of their admissions directors and just get some advice. And she looked at my scores and everything, and she looked at me, and she just said, oh, you have a reading disability. And I went, what? And she goes, yeah, people who get a 2 or a 5 in the reading comprehension, people who don't even speak English can do better than that. And I remember looking at her going, well, that makes me feel great. Uh, but what's the difference between – having a reading disability and just not being smart enough to be a doctor. And she said to me, well, you have the ability to comprehend complex things. It's just your way of processing is is not like everybody else's. And I asked her, well, what do I do? And she goes, well, you have to go uh, get evaluated and you can get some training. So I went back to UC Berkeley. I went to their disabled students um, area and uh, they got me in touch with somebody. I got tested, and it turned out I had a horrible reading disability. Now, you have to understand, this is like a couple of years after I already graduated college, and they're telling me that I have this terrible reading disability and that I don't have the ability to cram, and uh, you know that would have been good to know <laughs> my whole life because you know who doesn't do that? And so I spent a year learning how to read. I got a tutor, and I went to my two jobs, working as a bartender and a fitness trainer. Um, I was playing rugby at the time, club rugby, and um, I was studying. And I would go to Stanley Kaplan every day, and uh, which is a, a place to study for standardized tests. I don't know if they still exist. They probably do. But it was tough, you know. Uh, but I didn't feel sorry for myself. I went, and I... I um, I studied and uh, I took this third test and um, I got extra time. That was part of the thing with the reading disability was you got a, extra time and that made the difference. I got such a high score on the MCAT that I thought, okay, for sure, I'm going to get in this time. And I'll tell you guys what happened when we come back from this break. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. Before the break, I was just talking about my quest to get into medical school. Um, I left off where I had failed my second medical college admissions test. I had learned that I had a reading disability. Um, I went and got tested, I went and got training, and I spent a year learning how to read um, on top of two jobs, uh, working as a bartender and a fitness trainer, and I went in to take my third MCAT, and I got extra time. So part of uh, my diagnosis of this reading disability, they gave me some extra time, which I absolutely had to have in order to do the reading comprehension. Um, and I got a fantastic score. I got a super high score in the 90th plus percentile, 99th per, I don't even remember, but it was very high. And I remember thinking to myself, this score is so high, I'm definitely going to get in on my third try. And so I applied for a third time to medical school. And again, I did not even get an interview. So I'm starting to feel a little bit dejected now. I'm starting to feel like maybe my life is not going to turn out the way I had planned. And I asked myself, what should I do? And I thought to myself, you know what? I have to get my grades up. So I went back to graduate school, and I remember thinking to myself, I just spent all this time trying to get a great score on an MCAT. The last thing I want to do is have to take the GRE to get into graduate school, another standardized test. So I remember thinking to myself, my parents lived in Northern Virginia. Um, I called American University, which is located in Washington, D.C. I got in touch with their biology department. I basically told them my story that I was really wanting to get into medical school, that, um, you know, I have this great MCAT score. I really don't want to take the GRE. And they accepted me. And it was great. Uh, I remember Dr. Mira Jung, who was uh, my, my mentor there. She gave me a lab job, so I was able to make some money. And I started going to school. And I remember thinking the unfairness of it all. When I was at UC Berkeley, it was really not a great school for somebody with a reading disability. I mean, they got 30,000 students there at that time. I remember when I went to my freshman chemistry class, there was over a 1,000 students just in the classroom. The professor was sitting at the bottom of the auditorium there. He was so far down there, you couldn't really see him. And so you watched him on a TV that was kind of mounted above. They had TVs going all the way up the stairwells so that you could sort of see what he was doing. And he was very... Um, dispassionate, almost bored at having to do the teaching. You couldn't really ask any questions. If you did need personal help, you would go see TAs, teaching assistants. Most of the teaching assistants in the chemistry classes and biology classes and things like that were from foreign countries, China and whatnot. So they didn't really speak very good English and they were not really good at explaining things. It was just not a really great environment for me, which is another good lesson. You know, here I, when I got into Berkeley, I thought, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. I got into Berkeley 
And then it turned out not to be great at all for me. It was a very tough place. Berkeley is notorious for having strict bell curves. So, you know, you got a school like Berkeley, they let the smartest people in from around the world, and then they give 10% of them Fs, 10% of them Ds, Cs, 10 As, 10% As, and 10% Bs, versus other schools that have grade inflation, where, you know, my friends who went to Stanford would talk about the gentleman's B that as long as you showed up for class, you were never going to get anything lower than a B. And I remember my friend Mark, who went to Stanford, said, it's kind of your reward for being smart enough to get into Stanford. So this was kind of one of life's lessons. It's not fair, but it's the way it is. And I ended up getting into graduate school at American University. And I remember showing up at that first exam. And I asked one of my classmates, hey, are you ready for the test today? And my classmate looked at me and said, we have a test today? (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, most of these people in graduate school don't care about a grade point average at this point, but I did. And so I got straight A's that, that first year in graduate school. And so now I'm four years out of college. I got this great MCAT score. I've done tons of research. I worked at the Lombardi Cancer Institute. I worked at NIH. Um, I got a lot of experience, and I applied, and guess what? I did not even get an interview my fourth try. So I remember my father pulling me aside at this point, and he kind of gives me this father-son talk, and he says, Scott, you know, your mother and I love you no matter what happens, and you don't have to go to medical school for us. And I remember looking at my dad and saying, Dad, this has absolutely nothing to do with you. This is what I want to do with my life. And he kind of told me, um, you know, maybe you ought to start making some other plans. You know, maybe, maybe – and, you know, my dad was not about quitting, but he was about, you know, being um, – being honest with yourself, you know, I, I wanted to be a pro soccer player and I just wasn't built for it. I wasn't fast enough. I wasn't quick enough. I wasn't a good enough athlete. And I was able to accept that, but I still believed that God wanted me to be a doctor. And so I went my second year of grad school. I got straight A's again, and then I applied my fifth time. And boy, that was the most stressful year of my life. Um, because the time went on, I wasn't getting any interviews. And then finally, I got a few interviews. I remember I went, I want to say Medical College of Virginia or something like that. And I went to my first interview and the person who interviewed me was a lab guy and literally didn't give me the time of day. Um, you know, there are people out there, if you're not a traditional student, uh, they're just not interested in you. And I walked out and I knew that wasn't going to work out. I maybe had a couple other interviews. And then I went to St. Louis University, and I met a man who was a pediatric surgeon. I remember thinking to myself, this man is so old that he was already a surgeon on D-Day in 1940, June 6, 1941, D-Day. He was on the beach uh, as a surgeon. And I remember thinking, man, that's old. Um, I don't think he was that old now, but at the time... I did. And uh, anyway, we're having this interview. And, you know, I was a kid who went to college at Berkeley. And my views on religion at the time were, uh, you know, religion is responsible for all the wars and it divides us and all this kind of stuff. And I remember he looked at me and he said, well, that's that's one interpretation of religion and Christianity. He goes, but when I lost my son in a fire... I don't know if I could have made it if I didn't have God's strength inside me. 
And he gives me this story, and I'm thinking to myself, why in the world would I get myself into a political discussion or a discussion on religion in an interview where I'm trying to get into this school? And I really thought I had shot myself in the foot. And uh, fortunately for me, this gentleman did not take offense to what I said. And I eventually got into St. Louis University. Now, this is where my story really begins, because now I'm in medical school, and I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. But in order to be an orthopedic surgeon, you have to graduate at the top of your class. And we all know I am not the greatest academic student out there. So what am I going to do? I'm going to work hard. And boy, did I work hard. I When I think about um, being young again, I think, God, it'd be great to be young again, but oh, I'd have to go through medical school again, and that's out of the question. I think I'll just stay old. That was the hardest four years of my life. I could never do it again. I studied a minimum of eight hours a day every single day except for 12 days in the first two years. And I got the lowest A in every class but I got an A in every class, and I ended up graduating at the top of my medical school class. And I did it because we used to have these exam sets that were every six weeks. So you'd go to school for six weeks, and you'd take all these classes, anatomy, chemistry, uh, biochemistry, microbiology, <clears throat> immunology, uh, anatomy, you know, on and on. I mean, a million classes. It was really, really, really tough. The amount of the volume of information that you had to process was was unbelievable. And so we would go to these classes for six weeks, and then you'd have one week where you'd basically just have all exams. And then you'd kind of, uh, you know, everybody decompress, and then you'd go another six weeks and have another exam set. Well, most people used to kind of ease into their next exam set studying and wait a couple of weeks. Not me. I took that Saturday off, and that Sunday I was right back at, at it, eight to eight to twelve hours or more every single day, and and when I reflect back on the way things worked out, it ended up being amazing. And this is the point of today's show. This is the point of understanding what we're facing with the way the political landscape is looking right now. I graduated at the top of my medical school class, and I had five years of, of life after college that I would never have had had I gone directly to medical school. I mean, those years, I, I played rugby, I traveled, I, I did a lot of fun things during that time, and by the time I got to medical school, I was so fresh, so hungry so ready and actually so mature that I had a competitive advantage on all of my classmates. And when I looked back on it, it's like, wow, I thought all these times I wasn't getting into medical school, all this five years that things were not working out my way. In fact, it was working out perfectly for me and set me up to to be successful and to be the doctor that I am today. And And that's what I want you guys to focus on. Opportunity uh, presents itself. The road to success is is met mostly with failures. And if you talk to to anybody who's been successful, they will tell you the things they remember most were all of the failures that they've had. And when I started getting into medical school, um, I got into my residency. I was a top resident. I got into uh, a very competitive fellowship. 
Um, my fellowship director and the people that were there told me I was the best fellow we ever had. And so I was, uh, I was very well trained when I came out. And I remember thinking, okay, now I want to build my medical practice. And, um, you know, you show up that first day after training and you're so well trained and ready to go, but you don't have any patients. And the way that we used to build those patients was one at a time. That's what my mentors used to tell me. You build your practice one patient at a time by delivering quality care, by delivering um, the type of care that patients desire and the type of care that sadly is going away because our doctors are becoming bureaucrats and not doctors earning their patients one patient at a time. And, you know, you would go to the emergency rooms. I would show up myself. Um, I've talked about this on the show many times, a hip fracture. I'd come in, meet the family, talk to the patient, do that surgery at night. Um, you know, nowadays um, that very rarely happens uh, just because of the the bureaucracy and the fact that patients are not really um, – they don't really develop relationships with their doctors anymore. And a lot of this has to do with the corruption of our third-party payer system. And anyway, I opened up my first practice – and we eventually went bankrupt. And it wasn't because we weren't delivering great care and all of that. It was because the insurance companies had created a scenario with these ICD-10 codes, which is the coding system, and the CPT codes that um, that are basically designed to allow insurance companies to get away with not paying for their care. And that's basically what happened. I got five years into our first practice. Insurance companies would use these loopholes in telling us we're not coding right, and it took forever. Nobody trains doctors on how to do this coding. They would refuse to pay, and eventually we ran out of business. The other thing that happens is we have talked about it on this show that insurance companies, government officials, Medicare and Medicaid, they're all in cahoots to take control of big medicine and their goal is to disenfranchise doctors and their patients so that they can make all of the decision decisions. Now, I felt that this was very frustrating to me. I just worked really hard to develop a skill set. I worked really hard um, to be able to be in a position to build my own practice. And here I was controlled by this bureaucracy. Um, I've talked about it on this show before that when these insurance companies were not paying, that I went and had a meeting with the insurance commissioner in the state of Georgia. I'm going to leave his name out of it, but I don't remember how our conversation went exactly. But the bottom line, he told me he laughed at me. He didn't say it exactly this way, but he made it very clear that he was on the take from the insurance companies and that there was nothing he was going to do and there was nothing that I could do. And that was just life. And I better get used to it. And I remember thinking to myself, my father used to tell me, if you don't like your situation, don't keep banging your head against the wall and being frustrated that the situation is the same. You have to change your situation. So I always kept in the back of my head that I am going to build a private practice where I'm in control and I'm not going to submit to the government. And I spent years after bankruptcy learning about medicine, understanding the way things are, and trying to find a market for my patients. And now I have a practice that's thriving and big and everything beyond what I could ever imagine. And done in the face 
of uh, in a time when government has almost total control over our healthcare system, I still was able to build this practice that's almost free from government. And what is the point I'm trying to make here? The point is we are down and out right now. We lost the elections apparently in Georgia. Loeffler and Purdue both lost. Um, we seemingly have lost the presidency. The House is in control of Democrats. And so we're at the mercy of people who want socialized medicine. But I'm here to tell you that the fight goes on and that we don't know what tomorrow brings. But we're going to continue to work hard. We're going to continue to stay motivated. And we're going to continue to fight for free market health care. And you just never know how things are going to play out. And I'm just going to give you a little example. I remember when I was down in Florida, I was training at the University of Miami. I lived in, um, I'm blanking on the name of the county in South Florida. I was the Hanging Chads County. So I I actually was one of the 500 voters who decided the Bush v. Gore election. Um, And I remember, you know, that election was much like this one where it went contested and went all the way to the Supreme Court. And George Bush won the presidency and defeated Al Gore. And I remember thinking to myself, we won a great victory by the skin of our teeth. But through the prism of history, I look back on it and I think to myself, you know what? We didn't win a great victory with George Bush. He was the second biggest spending president we've had behind Barack Obama. He did nothing really to protect free market health care or conservative values and principles. He spent us into oblivion. We got into foreign wars that I think a lot of people um, have questions about now. Was it really necessary? Have we really needed to be in Afghanistan for the last 20 years? Um. And more importantly, the Republican brand, the conservative brand, was blamed for the 2007 financial crisis, which anybody who's educated on a subject knows that the Congress was mostly Democrat and that George Bush governed like a liberal with his big spending. And so the conservative brand got blamed for it, and that laid the groundwork for Barack Obama and the passage of Obamacare and the situation we find ourselves in now. And so when we look back, would things have been different if Al Gore had won the presidency in the Bush v. Gore election and Democrats had gotten the blame for the inevitable um, financial crisis that we were going to run into? And then maybe we wouldn't have had the Barack Obama administration and the implementation of Obamacare. Who knows? The point is, is that this fight has been going on for a long time and it's going to go a long time. It's going to go on forever and we can never quit. The other thing I would tell you is in my life, I've had enough experience with professional sports, professional athletes, with um, high ranking politicians, with uh, people with titles, accomplishments, um, And what I know is that they're just people. They're subject to the same flaws as the rest of us. I don't trust anybody because they have a title behind their name or because they have a degree. I trust actions. And that's what you should understand in your own life is when people get degrees and things like that, that's not the end of the line. Your degrees and your education, that gets you to the starting line. What you do in life, that's the measure of success. And 
I think a lot of us have lost our way, me included. My father used to always tell me the things that matter in life are honesty, integrity, humility, generosity, love, and grace. And when I think about the way my life has turned out with all of my inadequacies, and there are plenty of them with all of my failures, that by extending humility, integrity, grace, generosity, love, that you earn the respect of the people around you and that those people come back to support you at times when you need it. And and it takes a lifetime. You know, you're, I, I teach my daughters, listen, you're always on camera. And when tough times hit, that's the time we want to lash out. We want to cry. Um, we want to attack. Maybe we want retribution. And my father used to always tell me, and it's the one thing I say to myself, because anybody who knows me knows I got I get fired up very easily. But I always will say to this self, and it echoes in my head all the time, tough times don't test your character. Tough times reveal your character. And I'm not here to tell you that every time my character's been revealed that I've liked it. I'm not. None of us are. But I have had enough instances in my life where I've faced tough times. I've wanted to behave a certain way, but I could hear my father's voice echoing in the background. Tough times don't test your character. Tough times reveal your character. And it made me behave in a way that I am proud of. And if you do that enough in life, you earn the respect of others and you influence others. And that's where we're at right now. We're not trying to convince everybody of the righteousness of free market medicine or conservative values. We want to persuade them. And persuasion and convincing are different. Persuasion is getting them to understand and decide for themselves to come to the own correct conclusion on their own. Convincing is when you sort of cajole somebody into believing what you believe. What we want to do is is persuade people. Now, my pastor, who has sadly let let us down in my opinion we just came off of this year of quarantine of very tough times and i don't think i've ever needed church more than this year and it's been closed the entire time and i'm really frustrated that he did that and the church is still not open and it really frustrates me and it saddens me because we need our churches right now we need our faith and i need it one of the reasons i need it is I need to be reminded every week that it's not about me. And it's really important for me to hear that because I have patients that depend on me. I have people that are in my life that face, you know, trials and tribulations and the vicissitudes of life that far outweigh anything I've ever had. I have um, friends who, you know, their best days are not even as good as my worst days. And trying to live for those people that's what's important touching the people that are in your life that's what's important when i was in residency and we used to be on the trauma service i can remember trauma coming in and you know 10 20 patients busted bones and all kinds of crazy things going on and trying to keep everything organized in your head it became so enormous that it would overwhelm you and the older guys and girls used to teach us focus on the one task in front of you and then move on to the next one. And don't worry about the whole big picture. Well, that's where we're at right now politically with everything else. It's enormous out there. But what we need to do is take care of the people that are in our lives right now, our family, our friends, 
our relationships. We need to extend humility, grace, love, generosity. We need to we need to come together, um, and we need to continue to educate and continue to live our way, our lives in a way that makes other people want to lean in and say, what is that person doing? They seem to be happy. They seem to be successful. Why is that? How are they doing it? Well, I can tell you I do it because I hold myself accountable. I try to put my faith in God. And I try to remind myself on a daily basis that this isn't about me. This is about what God wants for me, and I have to listen and hear that. And that's what I want for you guys, too. I hope today wasn't too too uh, out of the way. I, I hope it wasn't too, um, too much of my life. I don't really necessarily want to talk about that, but what I really want to do is encourage people that we can never quit, we can never give up, there's always a way forward, and we're going to find it. And I want you guys to keep tuning in. We're going to talk about what's going on with healthcare. This fight goes on forever. We have to always fight for free market medicine. Um, you never get to quit the game of life. Okay? Good things always come to those who work hard. Tough times don't test your character. Tough times reveal your character. And let's be thankful for what we do have in life. There's a lot of people who are suffering. There's a lot of people that have obstacles in life that are unimaginable. We're all here for a short time, and we have to make our time count. I want to thank you guys for listening to me on the Doctor's Lounge. Uh, I'm Dr. Scott Barber. You're listening to me on America's Web Radio. And in the coming weeks, we're going to have some great guests for you to hear kind of their stories. We're going to continue to keep you updated on what's going on in healthcare. I'll see you guys next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.